0: chapter fourteen of the revolt of the angels this librivox recording is in the public domain the revolt of the angels by anatole france translated by mrs Wilfred jackson chapter fourteen which reveals the cherub toiling for the welfare of humanity and concludes in an entirely novel manner with the miracle of the flute the first night of his incarnation arkady slept at the angel istar's in a garret in that narrow gloomy rue Mazarine, which wallows along beneath the shadow of the old institute of france istar who had been expecting him had pushed against the wall the shattered retorts cracked pots broken bottles and odds and ends of iron stoves which made up the furniture of his room and spread his clothes on the floor to lie on leaving his guest his folding bed with its straw mattress the celestial spirits differ from one another in appearance according to the hierarchy and the choir to which they belong and according to their own particular nature they are all beautiful but in different fashion and they do not all offer to the eye the soft contours and dimpling smiles of childhood with its rosy lights and pearly tints nor do they all adorn themselves with eternal youth that indefinable beauty that greek art in its decline has imparted to its most lovingly handled marbles and whereof christian painters have so often timidly essayed to give us veiled and softened imitations in some of them the chin glows with tufts of hair and the limbs are furnished with such vigorous muscles that it seems as if serpents were writhing beneath the skin some have no wings others possess two four or six others again are formed entirely of conjoined pinions many and these are not the least illustrious take the form of superb monsters such as the centaurs of fable nay one may even see some who are living chariots and wheels of fire a member of the highest celestial hierarchy istar belongs to the choir of cherubim or cherubs who see above them the seraphim alone in common with all the angelic spirits of his rank he had formerly borne in heaven the bodily shape of a winged bull surmounted by the head of a horned and bearded man and carrying between his loins the attributes of generous fecundity he was vaster and more vigorous than any animal on earth and when he stood erect with outspread wings he covered with his shadow sixty archangels such was istar in his native home there he radiated strength and sweetness his heart was full of courage and his soul benevolent moreover in those days he loved his lord he believed him to be good and yielded him faithful service but even while guarding the portals of his master he used to ponder unceasingly on the punishment of the rebellious angels and the curse of eve his mind worked slowly but profoundly when, after a long course of centuries, he persuaded himself that Ealdabaoth, in creating the world, had created evil and death, he ceased to adore and to serve him. His love changed to hatred, his veneration to contempt. He shouted his execrations in his face and fled to earth. Embodied in human form, and reduced to the stature of the sons of adam he still retained some characteristics of his former nature his big protruding eyes his beaked nose his thick lips framed in a black beard which descended in curls on to his chest recalled those cherubs of the tabernacle of yave of which the bulls of nineveh afforded us a pretty accurate representation He bore the name of Istar on earth as well as in heaven, and although exempt from vanity and free from all social prejudice, he was immensely desirous of showing himself sincere and truthful in all things. He therefore proclaimed the illustrious rank in which his birth had placed him in the celestial hierarchy, and translated into French his title of cherub by the equivalent one of prince, calling himself Prince Istar. Seeking shelter among mankind, he had developed an ardent love for them. While awaiting the coming of the hour when he should deliver heaven from bondage, he dreamed of the salvation of regenerate humanity, and was eager to consummate the destruction of this wicked world, in order to raise upon its ashes, to the sound of the lyre a city radiant with happiness and love a chemist in the pay of a dealer in nitrates he lived very frugally he wrote for newspapers with advanced views on liberty spoke at public meetings and had got himself sentenced several times to several months imprisonment for anti-militarism istar greeted his brother arkady cordially approved of his rupture with the party of crime, and informed him of the descent of fifty of the children of Light who, at the present moment, formed a colony near val de Grasse, imbued with a really excellent spirit. "'It is simply reigning angels in Paris,' he said, laughing. "'Every day some dignitary of the sacred palace falls on one's head,' and soon the sultan of the cherubs will have no one to make into viziers or guards but the little unbreached vagabonds of his pigeon coops soothed by the good news arkady fell asleep full of happiness and hope he awoke in the early dawn and saw prince istar bending over his furnaces his retorts and his test tubes prince istar was working for the good of humanity every morning when arkady woke he saw prince istar fulfilling his work of tenderness and love sometimes the cherub huddled up with his head in his hands would softly murmur a few chemical formulae at others drawing himself up to his full height like a dark naked column with his head his arms Nay, his entire bust clean out of the skylight window, he would deposit his melting pot on the roof, fearing the perquisition with which he was constantly menaced. Moved by an immense pity for the miseries of the world wherein he dwelt in exile, conscious perhaps of the rumors to which his name gave rise, inebriated with his own virtue, he played the part of apostle to the human race and, neglecting the task he had undertaken in coming to earth, he forgot all about the emancipation of the angels. Arcadi, who, on the contrary, dreamed of nothing else but of conquering heaven and returning thither in triumph, reproached the cherub with forgetting his native land. Prince Istar, with a great, frank, uncouth laugh, acknowledged that he had no preference for angels over men. ''If I am doing my best,'' he replied to his celestial brother, ''if I am doing my best to stir up France and Europe, it is because the day is drawing which will behold the triumph of the social revolution. It is a pleasure to cast one's seed on ground so well prepared. The French, having passed from feudalism to monarchy, and from monarchy to financial oligarchy, will easily pass from a financial oligarchy to anarchy. How erroneous it is, retorted Arcadi, to believe in great and sudden changes in the social order of Europe. The old order is still young in strength and power. The means of defense at her disposal are formidable. On the other hand, the proletariat's plan of defensive organization is of the vaguest description and brings merely weakness and confusion to the struggle. In our celestial country all goes quite otherwise. Beneath an apparently unchangeable exterior, all is rotten within. A mere push would suffice to overturn an edifice which has not been touched for millions of centuries outworn administration, outworn army, outworn finance. The whole thing is more worm-eaten than either the Russian or Persian autocracy. And the kindly Arkady adjured the cherub to fly first to the aid of his brethren, who, though dwelling amid the soft clouds with the sound of citterns and their cups of paradisal wine around them, were in more wretched plight than mankind bowed over the grudging earth, for the latter have a conception of justice, while the angels rejoice in iniquity. He exhorted him to deliver the Prince of Light and his stricken companions, and to re-establish them in their ancient honors. Prince Istar allowed himself to be convinced. He promised to put the sweet persuasiveness of his words and the excellent formulae of his explosives at the service of the celestial revolution he gave his promise to-morrow he said and when the morrow came he continued his anti-militarist propaganda at Issy le Moulineux. like the titan prometheus istar loved mankind Arcadi suffering from all the desires to which the Sons of Adam are subjected, found himself lacking in resources to satisfy them. Istar gave him a start in a printing-house in the Rue de Vaugirard, where he knew the foreman. Arcadi, thanks to his celestial intelligence, soon knew how to set up type and became, in a short time, a good compositor after standing all day in the whirring workroom holding the composing stick in his left hand and swiftly drawing the little leaden signs from the case in the order required by the copy fixed in the visorium he would go and wash his hands at the pump and dine at the corner bar a newspaper propped up before him on the marble table being now no longer invisible he could not make his way into the Desparvieux library, and was thus debarred from allaying his ardent thirst for knowledge at that inexhaustible source. He went, of an evening, to read at the library of Saint Genevieve on the famous Hill of Learning, but there were only ordinary books to be had there, greasy things, covered with ridiculous annotations and lacking many pages. The sight of women troubled and unsettled him. He would remember Madame Abel and her charm, and although he was handsome, he was not loved because of his poverty and his workaday clothes. He saw much of Zita, and took a certain pleasure in going for walks with her on Sundays, along the dusty roads which edged the grass-grown trenches of the fortifications. They wandered, the pair of them, by wayside inns, market gardens, and green retreats, propounding and discussing the vastest plans that ever stirred the world, and occasionally, as they passed along by some traveling circus, the steam organ of the merry-go-round would furnish an accompaniment to their words as they breathed fire and fury against heaven. Zita used often to say, Istar means well, but he's a simple fellow. He believes in the goodness of men and things. He undertakes the destruction of the old world and imagines that anarchy of itself will create order and harmony. You, Arkady, you believe in science. You deem that men and angels are capable of understanding, whereas... In point of fact, they are only creatures of sentiment. You may be quite sure that nothing is to be obtained from them by appealing to their intelligence. One must rouse their interests and their passions. Arcadi, Istar, Zita, and three or four other angelic conspirators occasionally foregathered in Theophile Belay's little flat, where Bouchat gave them tea. Though she did not know that they were rebellious angels, she hated them instinctively and feared them, for she had had a Christian education, albeit she had sadly failed to keep it up. Prince Istar alone pleased her. She thought there was something kind-hearted and an air of natural distinction about him. He stove in the sofa, broke down the armchairs, and tore corners off sheets of music to make notes, which he thrust into pockets, invariably crammed with pamphlets and bottles. The musician used to gaze sorrowfully at the manuscript of his operetta, Aline, Queen of Golconda, with its corners all torn off. The prince also had a habit of giving Theophile Belay all sorts of things to take care of mechanical contrivances chemicals bits of old iron powders and liquids which gave off noisome smells theophile bellet put them cautiously away in the cupboard where he kept his wings and the responsibility weighed heavily upon him arcade was much pained at the disdain of those of his fellows who had remained faithful when they met him as they went on their sacred errands they regarded him as they passed by with looks of cruel hatred or of pity that was crueler still he used to visit the rebel angels whom prince istar pointed out to him and usually met with good reception but as soon as he began to speak of conquering heaven they did not conceal the embarrassment and displeasure he caused them Arcadi perceived that they had no desire to be disturbed in their tastes their affairs and their habits the falsity of their judgment the narrowness of their minds shocked him and the rivalry the jealousy they displayed towards one another deprived him of all hope of uniting them in a common cause perceiving how exile debases the character and warps the intellect he felt his courage fail him. One evening, when he had confessed his weariness of spirit to Zita, the beautiful archangel said, "'Let us go and see Nectare. Nectare has remedies of his own for sadness and fatigue.' She led him into the woods of Montmorency and stopped at the threshold of a small white house, adjoining a kitchen garden laid waste by winter. Where far back in the shadows the light shone on forcing frames and cracked glass melon shades. Nectaire opened the door to his visitors and after quieting the growls of a big mastiff which protected the garden led them into a low room warmed by an earthenware stove against the whitewashed wall on a deal board among the onions and seeds. Lay a flute ready to be put to the lips. A round walnut table bore a stone tobacco jar, a pipe, a bottle of wine, and some glasses. The gardener offered each of his guests a cane-seated chair and himself sat down on a stool by the table. He was a sturdy old man, thick gray hair stood up on his head, he had a furrowed brow a snub nose a red face and a forked beard the big mastiff stretched himself at his master's feet rested his short black muzzle on his paws and closed his eyes the gardener poured out some wine for his guests and when they had drunk and talked a little zita said to nectaire please play your flute to us You will give pleasure to my friend whom I have brought to see you." The old man immediately consented. He put the boxwood pipe to his lips, so clumsy was it that it looked as if the gardener had fashioned it himself, and preluded with a few strange runs. Then he developed rich melodies in which the thrills sparkled like diamonds and pearls on a velvet ground. Touched by cunning fingers, animated with creative breath, the rustic pipe sang like a silver flute. There were no over-shrill notes, and the tone was always even and pure. One seemed to be listening to the nightingale and the muses singing together, the soul of nature and the soul of man and the old man ordered and developed his thoughts in a musical language full of grace and daring he told of love of fear of vain quarrels of all-conquering laughter of the calm light of the intellect of the arrows of the mind piercing with their golden shafts the monsters of ignorance and hate he told also of joy and sorrow bending their twin heads over the earth and of desire which brings worlds into being the whole night listened to the flute of nectar already the evening star was rising above the paling horizon there they sat zita with hands clasped about her knees arcadi his head leaning on his hands his lips apart motionless they listened a lark which had awakened hard by in a sandy field lured by these novel sounds rose swiftly in the air hovered a few seconds then dropped at one swoop into the musician's orchard the neighboring sparrows forsaking the crannies of the mouldering walls came and sat in a row on the window ledge whence notes came welling forth that gave them more delight than oats or grains of barley. A jay, coming for the first time out of his wood, folded his sapphire wings on a leafless cherry tree. Beside the drain head, a large black rat, glistening with the greasy water of the sewers, sitting on his hind legs, raised his short arms and slender fingers in amazement a field-mouse that dwelt in the orchard was seated near him down from the tiles came the old tom-cat who retained the gray fur the ring-tail the powerful loins the courage and the pride of his ancestors he pushed against the half-open door with his nose and approaching the flute-player with silent tread sat gravely down pricking his ears that had been torn in many a nocturnal combat. The grocer's white cat followed him, sniffing the vibrant air, and then, arching her back and closing her blue eyes, listened in ravishment. Mice swarming in crowds from under the boards, surrounding them, and, fearing neither tooth nor claw, sat motionless their pink hands folded voluptuously on their bosoms spiders that had strayed far from their webs with waving legs gathered in a charmed circle on the ceiling a small gray lizard that had glided onto the doorstep stayed there fascinated and in the loft the bat might have been seen hanging by her nails head down now half-awakened from her winter sleep, swaying to the rhythm of the marvellous flute. End of chapter 14